From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 563, Microsoft Analytics Stack with guest Andrew Brust, recorded Wednesday, November 29th, 2017. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Andrew Brust, who is the founder and CEO of Blue Badge Insights, advising data and analytics ISVs on winning the market, solution providers on their service offering, and customers on their analytic strategy. He writes about big data for ZDNet and co-chairs the Visual Studio Live series of developer conferences. Andrew's an entrepreneur, a consulting veteran, and a former analyst and research director, and a current Microsoft Regional Director and MVP. Welcome, sir. It's really good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, I've known you for years and years and years. I think you've been on the .NET Rock show a few times, but the first time on Run As, and that's a bit embarrassing for me that it, after all this time. All right. Well, we've corrected it now. And yes, <laughs> .NET Rocks uh, at least twice. Yeah, at least twice. This is a first, so. There you go. And you know, you, you sort of play in both fields like I do, some dev, some IT, like they all sort of work together anyway. Yeah, I, I pivoted a little bit to being a talking head, and that was always kind of a hobby of mine, <laughs> working with a lot of press people. Yeah. And then I then I got the opportunity to start writing and talking to lots of vendors in the big data and analytics space and became a, a legitimate industry analyst for a while. So yeah, I zoom, I zoom up and down between being kind of hands-on with the technology and, and talking about it in a starry-eyed fashion, I suppose. Yeah, raw and enthusiasm. And before we go tearing <laughs> off into the subject, I do want to read a comment from a listener, obviously not from one of your shows. This is your first one, but it's somewhat orthogonal to the area we're talking. And this is from episode 535, which I recorded at Build earlier this year with Jason Anderson and uh, Sanil Kamath. We were talking about how Azure Database now has direct support for MySQL and Postgres. And I had brought up in the conversation about Postgres, this extension called Martin and said, are you going to be able to run Martin? The guys didn't know the answer right off the top of their head because they probably never heard of it. And actually, uh, Juna, who's a regular listener, said, to clarify, Martin is not a Postgres SQL extension. It's a .NET library that makes use of the JSONB in Postgres. It requires no Postgres extensions, but can make use of PLV8 for Postgres, in which Postgres in Azure should be able to support as well. So Martin should certainly be able to be used on Postgres in Azure. Great clarification, sir. I made a mistake. They obviously weren't sure, and uh, you've certainly cleared it up. So, Juna, thank you so much for your comment. A Run As Radio mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Run As Radio mug, write a comment on the website at runasradio.com or via any of the social media. We publish every show to LinkedIn, Google+, and Facebook. And if you comment there and I read it on the show... I'll send you a mug. And you're getting a mug too, Andrew, for being a guest on the show. I was going to say, I'd like a mug. I have a <laughs> mug now that just says meh on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a little downtrodden. So it'd be good to it'd be good to balance it with something a little more cheerful and upbeat. So yeah, put me on your list. We've been doing the .NET Rocks mugs for forever, and they just say .NET Rocks on them. When I did the sort of making the Run As mugs, because we use the bright colors on the website, there's actually eleven different colors of Run As Radio mugs. Wow! So collect them all. 
<laughs> Trade them. <laughs> Any box tops required? Yeah, or we no, don't do that anymore. Just come on the show. That's all it takes. Easy to do. All right. No more box tops. So you stopped doing real work. Now you're talking head, but you were always a data guy. I'm still doing real work. I did a <laughs> I did a full day workshop a couple of weeks ago, showing everybody the fifteen thousand ways to do the same thing with Hadoop. I love it. HD Inside and Azure. So I just like this. I like this existence of being sort of a double agent. Right. When I have my journalist hat on and I'm talking to product managers and I'm asking them questions that are kind of informed by my developer past. Some, sometimes they get a little incredulous and saying, God, we've never had a reporter ask us a question like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And then they're kind of gratified. And then, you know, then I guess when I'm with my developer friends and can talk about industry trends, they sort of react in an equivalent way. So I like that. Well, and I've certainly had the experience when you talk to a tech person in a press setting and you ask them a question, they, they get that moment to look when it's like, hey, you actually understand my product. You know, yeah. that it, it, is, it is a good moment. Especially in the data field, because the companies, you know, it's mostly startups and many, not all, but many of the companies are still led by their founders uh, who tend to be very technical in background. So they love it when somebody actually gets it. That's that's really cool. And I do think that the data side of things, especially the data analytics side of things, is incredibly confusing in the Microsoft space. There are so many products. Yeah, it's if and if you think it's incredibly confusing in the Microsoft space, try, you know, going to the more mainstream view of things where it's out of control. I mean, first of all, so many things are open source and have funny, cutesy little names. And those those get hard to keep track of where you have a query language called Pig Latin. Nice. Or you have a library called PySpark. <laughs> And there's no shortage of animal-derived mascots for these projects. But one thing I've been saying for a long time, maybe against my own interest, is there's too many companies in the space. There are so many startups, and many of them are doing very similar things. So navigating the market is tough. And it's actually, I shouldn't complain because it kind of provides full employment for me. Since I interview a lot of these companies, I have a good kind of working catalog of all of them in my head, and I can usually help people puzzle through it. Well, and I appreciate you sharing that with us, because I think there's a lot of folks listening to the show that are having exactly that same problem. They know they should be doing more in the way of data analytics. Maybe they're the old folks who came from OLAP server and such, and they're wondering, am I missing the boat? Such as me. (laughs) Yeah, you and me both, friends. That's my background. (laughs) Yeah. That's how I got here. Well, and even Hadoop at this point seems old school. I don't know how that happened. Hadoop is a little bit old school, I suppose, but it happens because the standards change, right? I mean, if everything is flavor of the month and something that's been around for an entire 10 years definitely seems long in the tooth. It's a shorter attention span, I think. And that's too bad because, you know, the whole thing around analytics and data, although we love to do things in real time based on data that's streaming in, you know, the most valuable data is the historical data. Yeah. And we should have more of an appreciation for history in general. And I think the VCs should have more of an appreciation for funding companies that are doing things that are novel and adding to the aggregate value in the field rather than funding a Me Too company. You mean reinventing the wheel? That's been done. Yeah, I I think there's certainly no shortage of people who say, well, I can do that a little bit better. And we have a space here that 
has proven efficacy and I can win it. But really, I think we're all better off if we're spending our time and ingenuity building on what's already been established and, sure. and adding to it. So how do you fit these pieces together? Where would somebody who's just getting into data analytics, where should they start? Actually, I think a good place to start is with some of the older stuff. Hmm. Data warehousing and BI is and OLAP, as you were referencing before. Sure. The term OLAP is also a bit fallen out of favor, mm -hmm. which is silly. But what's happened, let's say, with SQL Server Analysis Services, which is Microsoft's seminal OLAP server, is that a few years ago, they added a new storage model to it, which they call Tabular. And it's still the same product, and it still does many of the same things. But when that storage model changed, they stopped using the term OLAP, and they stopped using the term Cube. So to many people, if you say OLAP, that refers you know, to the older storage technology. And that's not what I mean. I just mean, in general, something like analysis services, something that lets you do dimensional analysis. Right. Dimension's just a, a fancy word for a category that you drill numbers down by. Start there because no matter what you're doing, it's always about aggregating across huge data sets or entire databases and then drilling down. And it makes sense to start with the stuff that, frankly, is more corporate and more enterprise oriented and a little bit more straightforward. And then from there, it makes sense to start bringing stuff in like Hadoop and Spark. And, you know, whether or not Hadoop is a, a bit passe, it doesn't really matter because Hadoop defines an entire ecosystem, right? That even the things that have nominally superseded it are part of. So it makes sense to go through the lineage of things a little bit. Well, and Microsoft did build direct support for Hadoop into SQL Server. They did, yeah. So their flavor of Hadoop is something they call HD Insight, and it is, uh, for the most part, a cloud service. There is this kind of esoteric on-premises version of it, but that's really kind of negligible. So Hadoop in the cloud is HD Insight for Microsoft, and that has various SQL libraries on top of it that you can query. However, separately from that, there's a bridge from SQL Server into Hadoop called Polybase, which also works with just kind of flat files sitting in cloud storage, as a matter of fact. And that lets you pull the data that's in Hadoop and pull it in and make it look like another table in your SQL Server database. And then you can just query it with T-SQL and even join it with real physical tables in your database. So it depends if you're in a really uh, SQL server centric, pardon the alliteration, sure. point of view, and, and that's where the skill sets are, then that poly-based feature that connects SQL server to Hadoop makes sense. Otherwise, if you want to be more general about it, then using an open source project called Hive or the Spark equivalent of it, which is called Spark SQL, probably makes the most sense. In any case, you'll be writing SQL queries in one dialect or another that go against the data that's sitting up in Hadoop. And I appreciate you know, balancing between what's cloud, what's on-premises, because I think there's a lot of folks, that are, especially on the data side, that haven't gone to the cloud yet and presume that all analytics must be done in the cloud. So it's useful if you're coming from a SQL Server point of view to know that there's choices. Although, does it make sense maybe to keep your data on-premises because you're required to and just do your analytics in the cloud? 
it's going to be a case by case thing. And actually, people should definitely not feel sheepish about working on premises because really most of the action in the big data world has been on premises. Nice. It's, it's changing now. The momentum has absolutely changed towards the cloud. I would say the installed base is still primarily on premises. So definitely nothing to, you know, be embarrassed about certainly. And yeah, we have this whole notion of data gravity, right? You know, with the, Data that you're going to be working on most, where is that? Is it on-premises or is it somewhere else? And if it's somewhere else, then it's going to be just as much work to bring it onto your premises as it would be to put it in the cloud. And of course, if it's born of the cloud, especially if it's born of the same cloud where you're doing a lot of your work, then it probably makes more sense to keep it there. Yeah, Most of the companies, and it, this really just kind of solidified in September at the Strata conference, Strata Data, which is probably the the preeminent conference in the data space. In New York, most companies seem to catch on to this phenomenon that, in fact, most companies are doing both and have Hadoop clusters on-prem and in the cloud, or they may have multiple clusters in one place or the other. And the real name of the game is being able to federate that and govern it as a whole. And that's that's the trend. The Hadoop workload, in my mind, is a perfect utility computing workload because you have that initial demand to do your big map work and then you reduce and then those machines aren't busy. It's nice to be able to give them back. Yeah, that's right. And actually, the whole notion of elasticity that the cloud is famous for is directly applicable to any technology that is based on compute clusters, sure. which Hadoop is. So not only is it about the fact that the workloads are intermittent and you may want to bring clusters up and down, but you may also want to upsize and downsize clusters in a dynamic way. And and of course, the cloud is really good for that. The one impediment that we still have, and it's to different degrees on different public clouds, but the time it takes to spin up a cluster can make it inconvenient to be constantly bringing them up and down. Sure. On HDN site, it can be a good 20 minutes before your cluster is ready. Wow. It's less than that on Amazon. It's very little on Google. Really interesting. But Google's doing some tricks where really it's not just your cluster, right? right. And in effect, they're, they're, they're bringing instances into your cluster that have already been warmed up. So whatever, there's upside and downside to that, right? Yeah, they've come up with some cleverness to give a perceived speed benefit. Exactly, but you may be in a a kind of multi-tenant situation that you wouldn't expect. Right. Hey, Andrew, give me one second here to pay the bills. This episode of Run As is brought to you by SQL Intersection. Eight full-day workshops and over 40 technology-focused sessions make SQL Intersection a unique source of the best information around SQL Server from real-world consultants and members of the SQL Server team. You'll learn proven problem-solving techniques and technologies you can implement immediately, as well as learn about the future of SQL Server. Get answers to performance monitoring, troubleshooting, designing for scale and performance cloud, as well as new features in SQL Server 2016 and 2017. It's time to determine your migration strategy, and SQL Intersection is the place to figure out the best way to do it. Come to SQL Intersection at the Swan Hotel in Orlando, March 25th to 28th. Use code RUNAS to get your discount on your registration at SQLintersection.com, and we'll see you there. 
And we're back. You're listening to Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell talking to Andrew Brust, and we're talking a little bit about the data analytics stack that Microsoft presents these days. I'll give you my Hadoop story. You remember Strange Loop Networks all those years ago. We sold it a few years ago. I do. Circa 2008, 2009, we were using Hadoop to do analysis on our appliances. So we were getting all this literally terabytes of data coming in from log data and trying to crush it all. And the best way we had to do is we would repurpose a load generation cluster that we had. So I had it was 16 or 24 pizza boxes that were normally used to generate high load tests because that's what we made was a web performance appliance. And we image them all off, throw on the Hadoop cluster onto it, run this crushing load of terabytes of data in a map reduce cycle, get the results back, flip it back. I think it ran over a weekend, but it was one of those routine monthly analytics jobs. And it and it's like, I wish I had the cloud back then. It would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you were kind of transforming the identity of your servers, yep. borrowing them, and then putting it back the way you found it. Exactly. Yeah, and of course, the cloud is geared toward that exact kind of approach of of purposing and repurposing resources and, and servers for specific workloads. So might as well go with the platform that does that as a matter of course than sure. having to script it all yourself, I suppose. It's all a question of where to haul the data to, that you want your compute skill set as close to the data as possible. Yeah, exactly. And we have this whole notion. I mentioned data gravity. There's also this notion of data locality. Hadoop is famous for that, where because the it's not just that the processing is distributed, but the storage is as well. Right. And if you play your cards right, you distribute the processing to the nodes that already have the data on their own local storage that you want them to process. Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. takes a little luck to get there, but it's it's an interesting notion. Meanwhile, in the cloud, we don't get that because in, in most of the cloud implementations of Hadoop are just using cloud storage and not any sort of direct attached storage on the on the individual nodes in the cluster. But certainly on premises, there is that notion and it's a neat one. It's great that we can handle these huge volumes of data now, but you know, there still is the, the physical fact that moving it all around is something to be avoided if possible. Yeah, I think it, the biggest time sink in our crush for data was populating those Hadoop instances with all of the data so that you did have something to map and reduce against. And you, when you say about storage in the cloud, are we talking data lakes or just plain old file storage? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, as it turns out, sometimes the phrase data lake is a euphemism for flat files stored in cloud storage. Right. Amazon loves to talk about their S3 storage as a platform for data lakes. And sure. Microsoft likes to say the same about their blob storage. And then they even have kind of a specialized storage layer that's based on blob storage called Azure Data Lake Store. Right. So that notion is there. And that that's actually like if you're coming from the database world, the, the client server database world, 90s and afterwards, the thing you have to start getting used to is thinking of files or even groups of files in a folder as queryable the same way tables are. Right. And if you can start grasping the idea that those things are comparable and that you're going to need to move back and forth between them, in some ways, that's the biggest battle. Well, it sounds like ETL doesn't exist anymore. You know, they, they, that used to be my job when we were dealing with OLAP and data warehousing was it was all about getting the data into shape so that it was queryable. And you're just saying, store it as a flat file and query it. 
Yeah, well, that absolutely still exists. It's just that the industry came up with a new name for it, and they call it data preparation or sometimes data wrangling. But it's still the same problem. Okay. It's still the, the fact that most data begins life as dirty, and the dirtier it is, the harder it is to query reliably or right. visualize. And there are companies that are just in the space of creating data preparation software as a standalone thing. Right. So it hasn't gone away. It's still going on. I just feel like one of the challenges we had with data warehouses is often we were shaving off some of the most interesting information to get it to fit into our model. Yeah, that we get rid of. We do still have to cleanse the data, but the idea that it must fit a schema that comes down from on high, that we have mostly dispensed with. That's probably the biggest difference between the DW, the data warehouse BI world on the one hand and the big data world on the other is this notion of schema on read, meaning really the schema is applied. We still have schema, but it's applied on a just-in-time basis when at analysis time, basically, rather than in advance. And again, this feels like an advantage of the cloud is that you have this huge amount of compute to do all that cleansing quickly so you're not waiting for long for it well the adage now is that you know most people are spending about 80 percent of their time prepping the data and only about 20 percent of the time analyzing it i mean that's become the big data cliche and i don't know how that number is exactly measured but certainly again it's sort of like you you can run but you can't hide right we still have to govern data we still have to do master data management we still need schema at some point you may be able to procrastinate and delay but eventually all the things we had to worry about before we have to worry about again what's nice about doing it later in the process is that you know different analyses call for different schemas some of the time. And if you have to legislate the schema in advance, that can make certain ad hoc analyses, you know, very difficult. And essentially, it's a disincentive to people to really nerd out on their data and figure stuff out. So that sort of liberal element of things, I think, has been really emancipating for a lot of people. And I think it's good. It does make data management even harder, though, because if the structure of your data is kind of an unknown quantity, until it comes time to do a specific analysis, then, you know, if it was hard to govern and manage and catalog before, it just got a lot harder. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate that. I read Ralph Kimball's book back in the day, and I think I still fundamentally subscribe to this idea that you pursue intuition with data analytics, or has it gotten more automated than that? Do we now have tools that, that bring us insight more effectively? We're starting to get there. Mm-hmm. I mean... Machine learning definitely ties into that. Sure. The irony of machine learning is that we use it as a destination for all the work that we do with data, and we don't use it as a tool as we do the work itself. So we're all about getting data all clean so that we can make models and do things predictively in a machine learning-assisted way. But what's ironic is until very, very recently, we haven't harnessed machine learning for our own work in getting the data in shape to be further analyzed. A little bit meta there, but that's a thing, right? This stuff is pretty recursive and and it is pretty circular. So if I'm picking up what you're putting down here, saying machine learning tools are really good at helping me get the data into shape? It's starting to work that way. Okay. And only just now. One of my biggest clients is in the business. It's a company called IOTAHO. They're in the business of finding the relationships 
in data that aren't in the schema for the purposes of having a better data catalog, for doing better data governance, and for better compliance with all the regulations around data that are sprouting up. The big one of those, of course, is something called GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation from the European Union, which does not affect only European companies. It affects any company around the world that has customers in the EU. So that's lots and lots and lots of companies. And IOTAHO uses machine learning to get all this work done. And really, not only is that novel, first you sort of marvel at at the novel approach, and then you look at it and you go, why weren't we doing this before? Because we have no prayer of cataloging all this data as it <laughs> mushrooms. Yeah, no kidding. Unless we're using some kind of an automated approach. And it can't just be a straight parsing, you know, kind of rule-based logic. It's It's got to be based on on machine learning and observation and models that are updated and so forth. So I'm happy to be working with them. For sure, yeah. Once upon a time, we were doing, quote unquote, data mining, but you don't hear that term anymore either. Yeah, but of course, all this machine learning, predictive analytics and artificial intelligence is data mining. We just don't call it that anymore. Right. It's the same algorithms. It's the same approach. You take a bunch of data, you use a portion of it to train your model and then a leftover portion to test your model, and then you have a model on which you can do predictions. What's mostly changed is the volume of data that we can use to train the model is much bigger now, and we don't rely on sampling as much, and we have all kinds of clustered high-performance computing technologies and even the use of GPUs to make training the models much, much faster. And so it's not really that any of this is new, but it's a lot more actionable now than it was. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And it still begs the question. It's like we have more products to go here. Is there a separate predictive analytics product or is that just part of machine learning? Like, when do I get into this piece? Well, yeah, first of all, a lot of those names really kind of apply to the same thing. You could certainly make the argument that artificial intelligence and machine learning are different, that AI is, you know, perhaps a subset of machine learning, et cetera. But the terms tend to get used, number one, interchangeably, and number two, inconsistently, such that it just ends up confusing everybody. If we can get past that, and if we can get past the rather romantic period that we're in, that the more primitive your tools and the more kind of intuition is required on your part to to build the models and tune and optimize the algorithms. Once we can get past that, which I hope is soon, then this stuff starts to become accessible to, I would say, pretty much anybody who's working with the database or working with data visualization or analytics. For sure. But it is... It is still a, a rarefied specialty in the priesthood right now. And uh, I I don't know. That always bugs me. I like to see things more democratized than that. But it did seem coming out of the Microsoft Connect event in New York a few weeks back that they were really pushing to provide tools for everyday DBAs and developers to be able to work in this space. That the data scientist is sort of an extreme term now. You Anybody can do this. Yeah, we're not really there yet. No? And the latest revision on Azure Machine Learning has actually gone in the other direction. Oh, my. Yeah, but it's been done because most of the practitioners who are really in this field 
if we want to have credibility with them, we need to give them a command line and give them every opportunity to write hands, you know, homespun Python code to get everything just so. What we also need, though, and I've been whining about this to the product team, is layers of abstraction on top of that. So right. give the mechanics what they need without buffering them, without surrounding them with some padding. Let them at the guts of it, but then add layers of successive abstractions so that other people can get to it too. And again, this idea that you sort of pick your algorithm manually and then through intuition, you tune all of the parameter values that you're sending to it. How about we actually use machine learning to help us do that selection? Yeah. And that's starting to happen too. That's interesting because, yeah, I think you, you know, Microsoft's always been pretty good about it's your foot. Like give you enough power that you can blow your foot off, but then try and wrap it in layers so that you don't have to be an expert to get anything to work. That the barrier to entry is fairly gradual. So that you don't have to run a marathon barefoot, for yeah. example. Yeah. 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 But there's a lot of romance around doing that. So I agree. It's required to pay some homage and respect to that as a dues paying kind of experience. Sure. It's like it was hard for me to do it. So it has to be hard for you to do it. Is that how that works? Something like that. <laughs> we have to get to the point where the, the folks who have all the statistics knowledge and really understand this stuff at a super low level, where they're not the the group that has exclusive access to doing this kind of sure. work. But right now, we're, we're still there a bit, and we have to wrest control from them. <laughs> That's my opinion. Do you think they're resisting? Well, if you have a rarefied skill set and a really nice compensation package to go with it, right. would you want it to become more open? Uh, I guess that's true. I wouldn't. But I suspect Microsoft wants to spread this thing around because the more usage, the more money. Correct. The yeah. folks who are the real specialists now, they're gatekeepers for credibility. So sure. that's the two-tiered set of requirements here is that you have to pass muster with the priesthood and then make it available to the laity. There you go. Yeah. So what's next for you, Andrew? Where should people go if they want to get more Andrew Brust? Well, one good place to go is with a bit.ly link. So bit.ly slash a Brust ZDNet. That will take you to a feed of all my posts on ZDNet. You could also just go to ZDNet.com or bit.ly slash big on data, which will then take you to the blog that I write for, but there's three of us writing for it. So it depends how broadly or narrowly you want to filter things. For sure. You can also go to bigdataguy.nyc. Did you know New Yorkers have their own top level domain? I did not know that. That's pretty cool. That'll actually take you to my about me page, which is in some sore need of, of being updated, but still the URL won't change. So I'm, I'm happy to share that. Great URL. Yeah, thanks. I got a bunch of those when they first went on the market. So Sure. Yeah. You have to prove residency to get it. Do you really? That's awesome. Yeah. But, you know, back in the early days of the internet, if you wanted a Canadian address, you had to prove that you span multiple provinces to get a .ca. Otherwise, it was like a .bc.ca. Uh, All of that went away eventually. Yep. Yep. Well, Andrew, really fun to talk to you. I appreciate your insight just sort of bringing us around in an arc about all of these different tools in the analytics space. It's helpful to sort of get them sorted out in your head. If I was helpful, then I'm gratified to been able to pitch in. It's good stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks again for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. 